Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we will take a chronological overview of Al-Mu'tasim's reign to describe its various achievements. The man at the center of the action will not be the Caliph, but his insatiable general Al-Afshin, Prince of Ushrusana. Despite the tremendous rewards and acclaim he earned in the service of his longtime liege, Al-Afshin seemed to always hunger for more, and the commander eventually got carried away and fell afoul of the established order. Episode 62 Princely Ambitions Six of Al-Mu'tasim's eight years at the helm were marked by some major conflict, the other two by large-scale purges of his own armies. His single-minded focus on the military did leave him with something of a one-dimensional legacy, but it also yielded spectacular results. The Caliphate went undefeated during his reign. It strengthened its grip over troublesome elements within and humiliated its adversaries abroad. Perhaps more significant than the unbroken string of victories is that the armies winning them were loyal to the person of the caliph, who spent great sums from the state's treasury on their upkeep. While it will prove to be a dangerously precarious arrangement down the line, Al-Mu'tasim wielded the full fighting potential of the awesome force he had amassed, completely unencumbered by its eventual drawbacks. During his first year in charge, Al-Mu'tasim's main battle was against the Zut, who were causing trouble in southern Iraq. Since we've already discussed that conflict, let's instead mention a much smaller, less dangerous flare-up in southeastern Khurasan. A Hashemite rebelled there in 833, and although he was no match for the province's capable governor, Abdullah ibn Tahir, I want to use this opportunity to remind listeners about the state of the Hashemite cause. I worry it may have been confusing to hear that Al-Ma'mun had tried to appoint a Hashemite heir at the outset of his reign, then pulled no punches beating back their rebellions, only to end up wedding his daughter to yet another Hashemite. First off, we're using the term Hashemite to refer to direct descendants of the Prophet, not his wider clan. Since the Ummah felt a sort of reverence for these men on account of their lineage, they represented an inherent threat to the Caliph. They were monitored and harassed wherever they went, and mercilessly persecuted if and when they tried to capitalize on their political potency. This sustained pressure led to the clan's effective disintegration as it was never allowed to develop any structure or leadership. The only exception was a line of remarkable religious scholars descended from the one male survivor of the infamous massacre at Karbala back in 680. These men evaded the perennial assaults on their kin by maintaining a strictly apolitical stance. They often still had to endure scrutiny and harassment, but overall they fared better than the rest. Their devotion to the faith and its traditions earned them great respect from religious scholars, and Jafar al-Sadiq, 
arguably the line's most preeminent member, cemented this reputation. He advanced the idea that prophetic inspiration was passed down father to son from Muhammad through his ancestors, making each one an imam of his time, the religious equivalent of a caliph, a spiritual leader. It's this line of imams that al-Ma'mun was enamored with. His first chosen heir was Ali al-Rida, grandson of Jafar al-Sadiq. When the caliph wanted to marry off his daughter almost 20 years later, it was to Ali's son, Muhammad al-Jawad, that he turned. The Mu'tazilites also regarded these men with respect, and so they were treated well during al-Mu'tazim's reign. The rest of the clan was not extended the same courtesy, however, and its more foolhardy members sometimes tried their luck on the battlefield. These uprisings were never tolerated, regardless how sympathetic a caliph was to the imams. So hopefully that clears up any confusion about the clan. I promise that this knowledge will one day become relevant, but for now I just thought a refresher couldn't hurt. Turning back to Al-Mu'tasim's reign, the three years between 834 and 837 were dominated by a grueling campaign spearheaded by Al-Afshin against Babak and his Khurramites in Azerbaijan. The Arabs had taken the province a long time ago, but local unrest only became problematic in the early 9th century. Like all mountainous regions, Azerbaijan was largely ignored by the new conquerors, who preferred to settle better connected lands. It was only after the Abbasid investment in Iraq had led to prosperity and a population boom that the residents of Mosul and Mesopotamia began to venture into the mountains. This put them in direct contact with the natives, who fiercely resisted the encroachment on their territory. The Khurramites were basically Azerbaijanis, and the term is in reference to their sect, an offshoot of Zoroastrianism. A few narrations purport to contain details about Khurramite beliefs, but all we find is salacious mudslinging. It's no surprise, really. For decades, they posed a danger to the Ummah, and the slander we find in our material tracks with how Arab histories depict hostile communities. The long struggle against the Khurramites left quite a record in our sources, but I think we can safely skip over most of the warring. As exciting as the fighting can be, I feel like it's a waste to dedicate a lot of time and effort to something that won't be consequential in the least going forward. Al-Afshin took his loyal Ushrusaniya and several thousand other troops to face Babak in 834. In 835, there were some massive battles, and Al-Afshin managed to beat Tarkhan, Babak's greatest general. The next year, he tightened the noose even further, and with reinforcements from Itach and Ashinas, he had Babak completely surrounded in his impregnable fortress above the town of Bav. I've uploaded some dramatic pictures of the fort, which lies in northwestern Iran today, just a few kilometers south of modern Azerbaijan. Babak surrendered the next year, and was brought before the caliph and executed in Samarra. His victory over Babak earned Al-Afshin great fame and riches. The caliph held a lavish ceremony in his honor and gifted him 20 million dirhams, 10 to divide up between his men and 10 to keep for himself. All this money made Al-Afshin a very popular commander indeed, 
and we'll get back to what he chose to do with his personal wealth in a minute. Because shortly after the caliph's court celebrated Al-Afshin's triumph over Babak, a few badly maimed refugees limped into the capital. Their tale infuriated the caliph, who heard how the Byzantines had raised two major fort towns along the border, putting all their men to death and enslaving the women and children. These arrivals in Samarra were a handful of designated survivors who had been forced to witness the horrors which befell their neighbors, then had their ears and noses chopped off before being sent to their caliph as a macabre message from Theophilus, who had personally led the invasion. The emperor's army was surely over 50,000 men, although perhaps not as large as Al-Tabari's reported 100,000. It did, however, contain a contingent of Khurramites, who were allowed to take revenge on the Arabs for what they were doing to Babak. It seems like the caliphate's two enemies had been cooperating for a while now, and the Byzantine invasion was even precipitated by the Khurramites, who hoped the Greeks would ambush the Arab armies besieging Azerbaijan from the west. Some narrations say that it was the heart-rending stories of the survivors which aroused al-Mu'tasim's wrath. Others, that it was the destruction of Zubatra, his supposed birthplace. Whatever the case, he responded in dramatic fashion, assembling the largest army the caliphate had fielded since before the Great Fitna, with some 80,000 highly skilled warriors. It was such an impressive force that our sources exaggerate its size far beyond the implausible. Al-Mas'udi, for example, says there were somewhere between 250 to 500,000 people involved. This host wasn't just going on a summer raid either. Its goal was the destruction of Amorium, a major Byzantine city and birthplace of Theophilus's Amorian dynasty. Having assembled everyone at Tarsus, Al-Mu'tasim laid out his simple plan. He hoped that an attack deep into Anatolia would draw the emperor out onto the battlefield, as that was exactly where the caliph sought to humble him. He would personally lead the Ummah's main force, which would first march from Tarsus to Ankara, then make its way southwest to Amorium. Al-Mu'tasim appointed some of his most trusted commanders in charge of the army's various units, but he reserved the indispensable Afshin for a special assignment. The prince of Ushrusana was given 10,000 horse archers and ordered to cut through Mesopotamia to Malatya. There he was to join up with the city's governor, Umar al-Aqta, and his 20,000 men and enter the empire from its east. The idea was for this smaller, mobile regiment to flush out any armies hiding in wait, then meet the main invasion force in Ankara before the assault on Amorium. While en route, they were to gather as much information on the emperor's whereabouts as possible to maximize the odds of a royal showdown. Ever the overachiever, Al-Afshin did far more than just collect rumors about Theophilus. Through some good reconnaissance, the Byzantines had learned a great deal about the Arab plans, and the emperor decided to take a good chunk of his men and deal with Al-Afshin's smaller army before returning to reinforce Ankara and await the caliphate's main host. The two met in battle in July 838, and although things started out well for the Greeks, the horse archers won the day as Al-Afshin deployed them to deadly effect. 
It was such a landslide victory for the caliphate that rumors began to spread the emperor had been killed. And Theophilus eventually had to go all the way back to his capital to discredit them and retain power. His flight from the region led the citizens of Ankara to evacuate their city, and it was sacked by Al-Afshin's men a few days later. Al-Mu'tasim was surprised at how little resistance his army faced on its cautious march to Ankara. Once there, he was even more surprised to learn from the locals that there had been a great battle in which Al-Afshin had bested their emperor. When the two Arab armies met a few days later, the caliph showered his victorious general with praise and gratitude, and together the recombined force made its way to Amorium. The siege of the well-fortified city took two weeks, and persisted despite repeated Byzantine pleas for negotiation. We find several dramatizations about how the city's well-fortified walls were finally breached, but the real point is that it was by no means an easy victory, even if Al-Mu'tasim's incredibly proficient armies gave that illusion. The city was completely destroyed, with all its citizens either killed or enslaved. The caliph even took its iron gates, to have them installed in his palace in Samarra as a memento. You can find a map depicting all these campaigns on the episode's page at thecaliphs.com. The loss of Amorium dealt a strong blow to Byzantine morale. The emperor's standing was greatly reduced, and the empire even abandoned his doctrine of iconoclasm after his death a few years later. The caliphate failed to capitalize on its momentum, though, a fact that some narrations plausibly blame on the conspiracy against al-Mu'tasim, which was only stopped a day before the caliph's murder was meant to occur, shortly after the fall of Amorium. Its discovery led to a year-long purge of the armed forces that left the caliph's loyalists more in control than ever before. Although the opportunity to kick the Byzantines while they were down slipped away, Al-Mu'tasim had two new problems to worry about the next year, in 838. One of them was quite short-lived, but I like how foreshadowy it is. The Ushrusani, whom Al-Afshin had left in charge of Azerbaijan, had stumbled across a few million dirhams which once belonged to Babak. Tempted by wealth and blinded by ambition, he tried to keep the matter a secret, but got found out after a whistleblower told on him. He killed the guy, and in a desperate attempt to escape the army dispatched his way, he took his newfound wealth and some men to Babak's invincible fort. It was only a few short weeks before they turned on him, though, putting an end to his badly planned act of overreach. Now on to the real issue, an affair which involved a number of important personages from the caliphate. The main three were Al-Afshin, Prince of Ushrusana, Abdullah ibn Tahir, the governor of Khurasan, and Maziyar, the Isbahbad of Tabaristan. So apparently Maziyar never paid his taxes to Abdullah ibn Tahir in Khurasan like he was supposed to, but instead he sent them west to Iraq. I suppose the distinction for him was that paying the caliph directly made Tabaristan seem more like an independent principality than a part of Greater Khurasan, but I'm only guessing here. This, of course, was considered an affront by Abdullah ibn Tahir, and the caliph sought to minimize tensions by telling his men to accept the tribute paid by Maziyar 
then forward it to Khurasan themselves. Our sources are very hostile to Maziyar, so it's hard to get a good understanding of the Isbahbad from them. We find plenty of harsh depictions insisting he was an unjust hypocrite who hated Muslims, although they remain silent on why Al-Ma'mun and Al-Mu'tasim found him good enough to work with. Anyway, this friction between the Isbahbad and the governor was long-standing, and it stayed benign until Al-Afshin began to stir the pot. Remember when I said that Al-Afshin had earned millions in rewards for his victory over Babak? Well, it seems like he tried smuggling it to his hometown of Ushrusana. Why he would try to move wealth surreptitiously is left unexplained, but it's worth noting that our sources are about as hostile to Al-Afshin as they are to Maziyar, so bad intentions are often implied. One day, Abdullah ibn Tahir had some of the Ushrusanis heading back east searched, and he discovered Al-Afshin's secret. He accused the men of being thieves and expropriated the money in the name of the state. When they protested that this was Al-Afshin's private treasure, the governor responded by saying that a loyal commander like Al-Afshin knew better than to resort to such underhanded methods of transferring wealth. This wasn't a mere power play by the governor either. There was an official way of doing things, and this wasn't it. His concern was probably that Al-Afshin was trying to purchase overwhelming influence in his native Ushrusana, which as far as Abdullah ibn Tahir was concerned, was a part of his domain, Greater Khurasan. This little episode is the one most often used to explain Al-Afshin's hostility to Abdullah ibn Tahir. Other accounts accuse Al-Afshin of an ambition to replace Abdullah as governor of Greater Khurasan, or a humbler one of stripping him of Tabaristan. Whatever the real motive was, we are told that Al-Afshin opened a secret correspondence with Maziyar and encouraged him to stop paying his taxes altogether. He promised the Isbahbad that if he started causing trouble, Abdullah ibn Tahir would be powerless to do anything about it, and that a frustrated Al-Mu'tasim would then replace him with Al-Afshin himself, giving the Isbahbad more autonomy. Our sources make it sound like it didn't take a lot of convincing for Maziyar to go along with this plan, as he never liked being part of Abdullah ibn Tahir's domain to begin with. If Al-Afshin's plot sounded completely unhinged to you, then consider that perhaps his experience fighting against the Khurramites had taught him how effectively mountains can paralyze large armies. Maybe he thought Maziyar would prove to be another Babak, one that Abdullah ibn Tahir would disgrace himself against. I don't want to be too charitable. I'm just trying to compensate a little for how the conspirators come off in our primary material. But perhaps I'm just compounding the distortion. In any case, Maziyar's disobedience proved pretty annoying in its first few months. It wasn't so much the loss of revenue, but his rebellion encouraged defiance in nearby communities, where the mountainous terrain made it difficult to tamp down on this sort of activity. The social dynamics were similar to the ones we discussed in Azerbaijan, as an anti-Arab, anti-Muslim attitude permeated the region. Given these parallels, perhaps one could be forgiven for thinking that Maziyar's movement could hope to survive as long as Babak's had. This was not the case. Abdullah ibn Tahir relished the chance to finally do something about the troublesome Isbahbad, 
and in 839, several armies were simultaneously sent to Tabaristan to bring Maziar to heel. Not only was the force overwhelming, but the court had also reached out to members of the Isbahbad's inner circle and convinced them that the only way to avoid ruin was to give up their lord. Before long, the caliphate's armies triumphed, and Maziar was captured and sent to the caliph in Samarra. The Isbahbad's revelations about his clandestine correspondence with Al-Afshin sealed the prince of Ushrusana's fate. We find a diverting narration in Al-Tabari about an elaborate trial which was held to prove Al-Afshin's guilt, prosecuted by the caliph's wazir, Muhammad ibn Zayyat. The main charge was that Al-Afshin was secretly trying to subvert Islam in favor of Zoroastrianism, that he was a Persian at heart and longed for his people to triumph over the Ummah. It's some disconcerting stuff, at least for an Arab at the time. Ibn Zayyat opened by calling two men with scarred backs to testify that they had been whipped on orders of Al-Afshin for building mosques in Ushrusana. Exhibit B contained some Zoroastrian artifacts found among Al-Afshin's belongings. After that, he asked Al-Afshin why he hadn't been circumcised, and when the prince said he worried about cutting off that part of his body, Ibn Zayyat said he could hardly believe a soldier who risked life and limb would fret about a tiny bit of skin. Finally, he brought someone to testify that Al-Afshin was referred to as Lord of Lords by his people, a title the vizier presented sacrilegiously. These accusations reveal the real gripe our sources have with Al-Afshin. Despite his years of loyal service to Al-Mu'tasim, he was nothing more than a foreigner who never cared for the Arabs or their ways. Both Maziar and Al-Afshin were found guilty of crimes against God and his Ummah. Maziar was executed, and his body was put on display alongside Babak's now rotten corpse. A special cell was constructed for Al-Afshin, high above the ground. He passed away of malnutrition after nine months of imprisonment, as he was only allowed a single loaf of bread and a cup of water every day. His emaciated corpse was eventually gibbeted next to Maziar's, but disdainful members of the public, scandalized by what had been revealed at the trial, tore down his body, set it on fire, and scattered the ashes down the Tigris. What an ignoble end for someone who had served as the caliphate's preeminent commander for almost an entire decade. Things calmed down quite a bit after this. We find short mentions of rebellions in Syria, Palestine, Egypt, and Kurdistan, but all were put down brutally and effectively by Al-Mu'tasim's other commanders. Al-Afshin had been named governor of all of Armenia, Azerbaijan, Mesopotamia, and Sindh, so other loyalists were selected to replace him. Ashinas, Hitach, and Wasif all moved into the spotlight now that Al-Afshin was gone. Ashinas, already governor of Egypt, added greater Syria to his charge. Itach became head of the caliph's personal guard, and Wasif a sort of hajib who never left al-Mu'tasim's side. It wasn't long until the caliph himself passed away, however. But before focusing on him, let's finish up what we know about the caliphate's administration. 
Following the deaths of Al-Afshin and the Isbahbad, Abdullah ibn Tahir achieved complete control of Tabaristan and Ushrusana. Tabaristan was actually meant to go to Maziar's brother for betraying him, but his people killed him for that crime, so direct management of the province reverted to the governor of Khurasan. This was the greatest geographical extent of the Tahirid dynasty, which was experiencing its apex under the capable Abdullah ibn Tahir. I don't mean to make it sound like an independent state. In fact, it was more like a vital part of the caliphate than a province on the cusp of breaking away. The Tahirids managed a particularly troublesome region for the Abbasids, and they did so faithfully and successfully. Khurasan had always been an economically and socially backward part of the old Persian empires, so its new status as a center of power provided a kind of prosperity which had been missing for a very long time. The material, social, and cultural progress of its people helped bring more stability to the province, but it still contained dangerous elements, from resentful local lords to ruthless carriageites sheltering in the expansive hinterland of Khurasan. Not only did the Taharids take care of all of that for the Abbasids, but they turned a profit doing so too, and forwarded tax revenue west to Iraq. It was a great arrangement for the caliphate, probably the best one devised by al-Ma'mun during his long reign. I guess this is a good point to share a small corrective about Yemen. I know I said that al-Ma'mun's Umayyad choice for governor, Muhammad ibn Ziyad, spun the province into his own independent Ziyadid dynasty. But that's only partially true. Although the Ziyadids would remain in power, it was only over about a quarter of Yemen, around the city of Zabid and some coastal areas there. Yemen was pretty big, and it had room for another governor, appointed by the caliph, and even considerable opposition in its hills and mountains. The thing is, I can get away with ignoring this whole part of the caliphate as I'd just be following the court's lead. Have you noticed how small a part the Arabian Peninsula played in the reigns of our last three caliphs? It's odd if you consider the strong relationship their father had with Mecca. But perhaps this was real politic in action. The Arabs weren't an especially valued part of the state, and their lands produced little to no tax revenue. The tribes that inhabited the Arabian desert no longer identified with the caliphate in any meaningful ways, or at least organizationally effective ones. To get the tribes to participate in the ummah, one had to work with the tribal leadership, and the caliphate had already evolved past that point. Let's return our attention to the caliph as we conclude our discussion of his reign. He fell ill in late 841, and in early 842 Al-Mu'tasim passed away after a bout of hirudotherapy, which is the technical term for when leeches are used for bloodletting, a common medical practice in medieval times. Despite the unexpected passing of the generally healthy 45-year-old, there was no confusion about who was to succeed him, as the caliph had already designated his eldest son, Harun, as his heir. Our primary sources describe Al-Mu'tasim in a way that is highly congruous with his soldierly reign. While it's always suspicious to see such neat parallels between a caliph and his time in charge being drawn, there does seem to be some truth to it this time. 
Narrations agree that he was a burly, muscular man who preferred the company of similarly brawny folks. He was also quick to anger and brutal in his wrath. He was also quick to anger and brutal in his wrath. For example, when a few captives from his campaign on Amorium escaped as the armies were marching back to the caliphate, he ordered that all the rest be executed right then and there, leading to a massacre of 6,000 civilians. Sycophantic accounts still find ways of applauding his time in charge, however. They transform his savagery into a kind of vicious, unflinching defense of the Ummah, and portray it as a sign of his conscientiousness regarding his duties as caliph. He's also described as a generous benefactor who gave over 100 million dirhams in support of various worthy causes within the caliphate. Despite the prosperity of his reign, Al-Mu'tasim is rarely praised for his piety, most likely due to the trial of jurists and scholars kept up by his Mu'tazalite chief justice, Ahmad bin Abi Da'ud. Another thing he is never mistaken for is an intellectual, and although some material flies in the face of his severe reputation by saying he was an amiable fellow, nobody goes so far as to say he was a scholar of any refinement. Let's not scrape the bottom of this barrel any further, however. We've relayed all we find on the man, and it's time to move on. To hear about his successor, join me next time, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.